0: Welcome back to Counting to Five, a podcast about the United States Supreme Court. I'm Mike, your host. This is our weekly YouTube live stream being broadcast live Thursday, May 31st, 2018 at 9pm Eastern Time. This live stream will also be posted as an episode of the Counting to Five audio podcast. And in these weekly live streams, we try to keep up to date with the latest Supreme Court news. If you're watching live, please feel free to ask questions in the YouTube live chat at any time, and I'll try to keep an eye on it and answer questions as they come up. So here's what I plan to cover today. We're rapidly approaching the end of June, which is the court's self-imposed deadline for issuing opinions in all the terms cases, but the court continues to proceed at a snail's pace uh, of uh, opinion issuances. This week, on Tuesday, May 29th, the court issued opinions in only two argued cases and also dismissed a third case without an opinion. I'll uh, spend the bulk of this episode discussing each of those three cases. Um, but before we get to that, first, a few developments in some other cases, uh, developments this week. The first is a case called Culbertson v. Berryhill. Now, this is a case uh, that the court granted just last week. Um, and I uh, talked about this case and uh, gave a little summary of it in last week's live stream episode. This is a case that involves the cap on attorney's fees, a statutory cap on attorney's fees for lawyers who are bringing challenges to denials of Social Security benefits. Now, when I talked about this last week, I mentioned that when the case got to the Supreme Court, the government uh, switched positions. The Social Security Administration, which had been um, – uh, Opposing the uh, lawyer's uh, efforts to get higher fees now agreed with the attorney uh, before the Supreme Court and agreed that he was entitled to the fees that he was seeking. And the government in its brief um, in response to the cert petition suggested that the court should appoint an amicus curiae, a friend of the court, to defend the decision below. And that's the court's typical practice in these circumstances. When you have a circumstance, a situation where a lower court rules in favor of some party or other and when the case gets up to the supreme court neither party is willing to defend at least willing to defend the the rationale or the reasoning that the lower court used um here they're not the government's not even uh, doesn't even support the outcome of the lower court um the court will often appoint an amicus and just an outside uh, attorney to come in and defend the reasoning of the court below just to basically give a full airing of the of the different um positions that have uh, been expressed in the case um if I, I guess the the ideas of a lower court uh actually you know this is one of the uh, federal courts of appeals actually um issued an opinion endorsing this view then it, it the court feels it's at least uh um worth its time hearing that argument um and hearing out the uh the, the, lower, the position that the lower court adopted. Um, so what happened was uh, last Friday, that's May 25th, the court did issue an order inviting an attorney named Amy Weil to brief and argue the case in support of the judgment below. Now, uh, Weil is an attorney with a solo practice in Atlanta, Georgia. She worked for 25 years in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of Georgia, including 18 years as the chief of the appellate division. Um, she's apparently very active in bar activities related to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and appears to be widely respected with extensive appellate experience, um, though it doesn't appear that she's ever argued a case uh, at the Supreme Court. Um, she seems very well qualified for this this kind of an amicus appointment. Um, however, unusually, unlike many of the appointed amici, um, she's not a former uh, Supreme Court clerk. Um, the invited uh, amici, the the amicus the argu- arguers, they're typically selected by the circuit justice for the jurisdiction the court the case came from. Now, this case came out of the Eleventh Circuit. And the circuit justice for the 11th Circuit is uh, Justice Thomas, Clarence Thomas. Now, circuit justice is just a justice who's assigned to a particular circuit that's a, a jurisdictional region of the com- country. Um, and that circuit justice has certain limited oversight responsibilities with respect to that circuit. Most significantly, um, that circuit justice has kind of the, the first-pass review of emergency applications to the court, uh, for example, stays of lower court opinion uh decisions and things like that. Um, so Justice Thomas is the circuit justice for the 11th circuit. And often in these cases, uh, these justices tend to appoint one of their, their former um, clerks to, to, uh, to take on the argument. But uh, Justice Thomas, he actually, this kind of fits. He has a history of in, in his hiring of clerks of looking beyond the typical elite credentials, for example, you know, degree from Harvard or Yale law schools in hiring his law clerks, um, and, and kind of reaches more broadly than many of the other justices do. And it looks like he took a similar approach here, looking to a broader pool of, uh, you know, potential attorneys than just his own former clerks. So, um, so, uh, Amy Weil will uh, will get an argument before the Supreme Court, and uh, um, she probably has a, a, a uphill battle here, given that um, the all the uh, parties in the case are uh, are now uh, on the other side uh, opposed to the position that she's been uh, appointed to defend. But uh, we'll, we'll learn more about that case as it uh, as it becomes uh, briefed. So, moving on from there, there's two more orders this week I want to talk about briefly. These are both. Um, orders where the court provided uh, no explanation for the particular action, and court watchers are left to just speculate about what's really going on. But uh, I'll take them each in turn. Now, the first I mentioned above that in addition to um, issuing opinions in two argued cases, the court also dismissed one argued case without an opinion. Um, this is a case called City of Hayes, Kansas v. Vote. Now, this case was dismissed as improvidently granted, or just the 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 um. The kind of the sh- short uh, Supreme Court jargon for that is, is the case has been digged. Dig for dismiss as improvidently granted. Um, when, when a course is, when a case is digged, it's, it's basically as if the case was never granted in the first place. It's just, uh, it kind of undoes the, the court's, um uh, grant of the of the uh, writ of certiorari and the case goes back to the lower court uh, just as it was before the the court stepped in to take it in the first place. Usually when this happens these these digs it's usually due to what's known as a vehicle problem which in, in other words the case is the the court believes that the case is a bad vehicle for deciding whatever legal question the court granted uh the case to resolve. Um, the the order itself doesn't give any inf- information but the full text of the order uh, dismissing the case just says the writ of certiorari is dismissed as improvidently granted and that's it no further explanation so just just to give a little more background with this case the basic facts of this case involve a police officer in Hayes Kansas named named Matthew Vogt now, he was subject to an inter- internal investigation in his police department over alleged misconduct, and he was required to participate in that internal investigation um, just on penalty of, of losing his job. He was required as a condition of his employment to participate in the investigation. Now, Vogt was later criminally prosecuted, not by his police department, but but by a, a, a um, state prosecutors. And his statements made in the internal investigation were used against him at a preliminary hearing, uh, a probable cause hearing in the criminal prosecution. Now, the charges against him were dismissed, so these statements were never used at trial. Um, but they were used against him at this preliminary hearing. So he has brought this uh, this this case arguing that his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination were violated because these statements, uh, under Supreme Court precedent these statements that he had to make um, as a condition of his employment in the internal investigation are considered compelled statements and the use of compelled statements in a criminal prosecution violates the 5th amendment's right against self-incrimination that's that's uh, uh votes basically a basic argument the city on the other hand argues that this 5th amendment right is a trial right it applies only at trial not to preliminary hearings and they argue that extending this to preliminary hearings would have a pretty dramatic um uh effects in any case that that's the that's the basic issue uh that's that, that was was um the court was going to decide in this case but already at oral argument this case was argued back in february uh it was clear that, that from some of the questions from justices that, that some of the justices weren't um, too pleased with this this particular case as a means of answering this question, um, there were questions raised uh, by Justice Breyer at the oral argument concerning whether votes statements were actually ever actually introduced at the preliminary hearing in the first place, and also whether proper objections uh, in that court were made to preserve um, his constitutional argument. And there was there was actually a disagreement at oral argument between Justice Breyer and Chief Justice Roberts over whether these factual issues are even relevant. To the court's decision in the case and there were other complications as well um, relating to uh, an existing precedent which came under question and and just some some other factual issues and there was actually a suggestion Ad oral argument from justice breyer that the court should basically should should dig the case dismiss it um, because it, it just didn't seem like a good uh, a, a good can of good vehicle to answer this question but the, the question there is then why did it take so long uh for the court to actually decide to get rid of the case. As I as I mentioned, the case was argued back in February. These these issues, if those are the issues that prompted the dig, they were raised back then in the oral argument. So why did it take us all the way to the uh almost the end of May um before the court actually got rid of this case? Why didn't they do it right away? So that suggests that there must have been something more to it. Perhaps there were draft opinions, um going back and forth, some internal back and forth between different justices um over the uh the uh, what should be done about this case, how to handle it. Um, but there's really uh, no way to know exactly what was going on in there. Um, there's, there's been some speculation that perhaps this case was actually heading toward a 4-4 split. Now, Justice Gorsuch was recused from this case. He, he was sitting on the Tenth Circuit at the uh, time the case was decided. This case came out of the Tenth Circuit. At the time the case was decided below, he was still a Tenth Circuit judge and uh, and uh, recused uh, uh, presumably due to some involvement. Um, in the case at that time. And so that leaves the possibility that this case could could have resulted in a evenly split case. However, if that was the, the um the what was going on here, it's not clear why the court wouldn't have just indicated that. When there's a when there's a four four split, um, that leads to a non precedential affirmance of the lower court's decision by an equally divided court. So the court just indicates without any opinion that the lower court decision is affirmed by an equally dis- divided court, but it's effectively identical in result to a dig. Um, it, it, there's, there's really, really no difference. Basically, the lower court opinion, uh, the lower court decision stands and, uh, and then there's no, um, no new precedent set by the Supreme Court. So if it really was a 4-4 split going on in there, then why, um, why make it seem like a look like a dig? Why why um, denote it as a dismissal as improvidently granted? Um, of course, on the other hand, the fact that the, the the court has stark internal divisions over how to handle a particular case, if if that is what was actually going on, it may be the kind of thing that might make a justice think the case is actually a bad vehicle to decide the legal question and and maybe shouldn't have been granted in the first place. So these theor- theories aren't necessarily mutually exclusive but again this is all pure speculation this is one of those area of areas where the the court uh you know doesn't give any explanation gives you know no uh, no indication of why it's doing what it's doing so so we're left to just kind of kind of guess it's the kind of thing that maybe decades from now when uh, one or more of the uh justices long after their retirement uh, releases some of their internal papers uh, to the public uh you know might shed some light on this, but uh, by that time, it's doubtful anyone will care about this particular case. Uh, one more brief case I want to talk to, about before I get onto the opinions is a case called uh, Planned, Parenthood, Planned Parenthood of Arkansas and Eastern Oklahoma v. Jegley. Now, in this week's orders list the, the orders list that came out on tuesday this week after the the long uh, the 3 day weekend um the orders list consists of the orders that result from resulted from last week's private conference and as always it includes uh, numerous denials of petitions to the court. Um, there's well over a hundred cases that the court denied this week. That's very typical because if you've, uh, if you've been following the court for a while, you know the court only takes something in the ballpark of one out of a hundred petitions is actually granted to, to be uh, heard by the, the court. Now, we usually i usually don't spend much time discussing any of these denials because the court gives no explanation of why it's doing why it's denying any particular case and denial of a petition is basically the expected outcome it's it's the those the rare grants that are the exceptional cases the unusual situations um but there's one denial this week that has been getting a lot of attention and that is this planned parenthood v Jegley case now this case involved an arkansas law requiring doctors who prescribe uh abortion inducing drugs and this is referred to as medical abortions as opposed to surgical abortions um, it, it requires those doctors to have an arrangement with a with a doctor who has admitting privileges at a nearby hospital now this is similar to a Texas law that was dec- declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in a case 2 years ago called uh, whole women's whole women's health v Hellerstedt now this case the this this uh, Arkansas case is still in the preliminary stages of litigation in the lower courts but the 8th circuit court of appeals had denied a stay of the of the effect of the statute so the, so because they've denied that stay the law will go into effect while the litigation continues and Planned Parenthood has said that this will have the effect of shutting down two of the only three uh, there was only three abortion providers in the state and two of those three would end up being shut down by this uh, by being unable to to comply with the provisions of this law, so they had sought this stay and and were uh, asking the court to review um, this Eighth Circuit decision. Now, the Arkansas law it's an example of um, what's referred to often by uh by abortion rights supporters as a uh, what's called a trap law. That's a just an acronym that stands for targeted regulation of abortion providers, um, and the the Eighth Circuit. Um, has been criticized uh, by by uh, um abortion rights supporters have criticized the 8th circuit's decision as as um not following the supreme court's decision in in uh, in the whole women's health case this has been characterized as as what's been called a part of a trend of lower courts uh reading that whole women's health um decision uh, very narrowly to provide uh, very little protection for these uh the abortion providers. Uh so these abortion rights supporters had hoped that the court would reverse the 8th circuit and stay the law while the litigation plays out. So as usual the, this denial like like the almost all of the court's uh petition denials is completely unexplained. So it's again left to pure speculation why the court didn't take the case. Um, some have speculated that 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 maybe we can read something into this denial, uh, a suggestion about uh the likelihood that justice kennedy who was the crucial fifth vote in the whole women's health case the likelihood that he intends to retire at the end of the term but uh arguments have been made both ways of why this indicates that kennedy is likely to uh remain on the court and still be here next term why this means that kennedy is likely to leave the court uh, it's it's a uh, pure speculation one way or the other and and what's more there's really no solid reason to think kennedy will retire this term apart from his age kennedy is 81 years old which makes him the second oldest justice on the court after the 86 year old Ruth Bader Ginsburg um Ginsburg however has been very clear that she has no intention of stepping down anytime soon um Kennedy has has uh, has not been so clear so speculation has uh, has been rampant over over whether um this will be his last year on the court of course the exact same speculation was happening toward the end of last term uh when many people were convinced that uh Kennedy was about to announce his retirement but uh that did not happen last term and uh again um, you know aside from his age uh there's there's no um, no uh particular reason to to believe that uh that he's uh about to step down uh anytime soon uh so moving on um, in this uh this Tuesday's orders list there were no new grants of cases for next term. Uh, no new grants uh, added to the uh, the court's docket for next uh, next term. The, so far, the court has granted 18 cases uh, for next term. Just due to the um, the briefing schedule, the amount of time it takes for cases to become fully briefed for oral argument, uh, the court basically needs to fill its fall calendar. That's the October, November, and December um, argument sessions before the court leaves for its summer recess in order to. Give those cases, uh, enough time to be briefed before argument. And to basically fully fill the court's calendar would take about 34 cases. Uh, in recent years, the court has not filled its fall calendar. It's had light argument days where it, where it had uh, less arguments that it could have, than it could have easily, um, easily placed on its calendar. Um, but right now with eight I'm sorry, the uh, feed dropped out again uh, on me, but I'm back. I hope uh, you're still with me. Um, But uh, I I was saying that uh, with 18 grants so far and looking back over the last uh, number of years, I looked back at the statistics for the last uh twelve terms. and the average number of cases that the court grants in the month of June, the last month before it goes on a summer recess over those twelve years is about fifteen cases. So putting that together with the eighteen they've already granted um, you know if they if they hit that average, that would be thirty three cases, which is just almost a full fall calendar, which would be more than they've done the last few years now, of course, there's a large variance from year to year. The, the, that 15 is just an average and, and, uh, and it can be a bit lower or quite a bit higher than that. Um, so, you know, we don't really know. We won't know until the end of June, um, how the fall calendar is really going to, uh, going to shape up. Uh, but nothing new this week. So that brings me on to the opinions in argued cases. Now, before this week, um, there were 32 Outstanding cases, 32 cases that the court had heard argument in that had not yet been decided with only five weeks left in the term. So in order to clear all of those cases before they go away, they need to, to average about six or seven opinions per week. But as I mentioned, the court in fact only issued two opinions in an argued case and also got rid of a third case. So it's kind of well below that average. So that means as we get closer to the end of the term, it's the, the, um, these cases are getting more and more concentrated in the last few weeks. So we're going to have some really heavy weeks toward the end of the term. Um, These two new opinions and argued cases bring us up to a total of 32 for the term so far. Um, So we finally crossed the halfway mark in terms of uh, opinions and argued cases. We have 32 um, opinions issued. We have 29 left to come uh, in the next four weeks. Um, The two opinions issued this week do not include um, any of the, the really highly anticipated cases um, that 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 are that everybody's been waiting for for the end of this term. Now this this term has had a unusually high number of of really high profile cases, cases that are either um, kind of culture war issues or just very divisive partisan political um, cases. And uh, depending on how you count, I would say there's there's maybe eight to ten um, cases left that have not been decided yet that 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 I would call high profile. Um, big cases, um, and all of those eight to ten cases are are still still outstanding, still out there, and there's only four weeks left. Um, and now, one other thing: the 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 dismissed case that I mentioned uh, earlier, um, the the city of Hayes v. Vote case, um, that actually drops us down uh, to uh, only sixty one uh, opinions expected in argued cases. Now the court heard oral argument in 63 cases this term, and that's already, that's a historical low number. Um, but after those arguments, the, the one case, United States v. Microsoft was dismissed as moot because there was a, a change in the law. Congress passed a new statute that affected the issue in the case. So that was dismissed. And now the dig today of city of Hays v. Vote, that brings us down to 61. And this is extremely low, um, this is really like a historically, historically low number, number of cases. So it's just an, kind of interesting, uh, the, the courts, the court has had a, a continually declining docket over the last, uh, several decades. And this is just, uh, shows that that trend, uh, has not, uh, you know, has not, um, had not finished. We, we've gone down even lower, uh, than, than, uh, than the last several years, which were already his- historical standards low. Um, so again, 29 opinions left to go, four more weeks left. So the court has to issue more than seven opinions a week on average to clear these all out before the end of June. There, there's every expectation that the court will do that. It's been more than 20 years since the court has missed that June deadline. Um, the justices have summer plans all set to go and, uh, and, uh, have no intention if they can avoid it of extending their, uh, their, um, term into, into July, um, but uh, so, so we can expect some very heavy weeks uh, loaded with these high-profile cases. Uh, so let's move on and, and talk about the two opinions that we got this week. The first of the two, um, this is this is uh, the, the one that, that uh, has gotten a little more attention. Is a case called Collins v. Virginia, and this is a Fourth Amendment case, and it's about the intersection between two different lines of Supreme Court precedents. And the first of these is it's a, a doctrine known as the the uh, the automobile exception to the warrant requirement, and this is the idea that when a police officer has um, probable cause to search an automobile, then that search can be conducted without the need for a warrant. Um, this is it's. Typically referred to as the automobile exception, and this comes up in, for example, at a traffic stop. If the police make a traffic stop, they have probable cause to search. Um, they they don't need to wait for a warrant. They can actually they can just conduct that search. And this um, this is justified by this the court in its opinions by the ready mobility of of automobiles, the fact that an automobile can be uh, you know moved. Uh, easily to a different location. So if the, the time is needed to um, obtain a warrant, uh, the car would be gone by the time a warrant was obtained. And also the pervasive regulation of vehicles traveling on public roads which the the court uh, suggested caused a a uh, lower expectation of privacy in in when someone's operating a car in on the public roads um, but the second line of uh, of kind of, of fourth amendment uh precedents is um is about something that the, that's referred to as the curtilage of the home now, curtilage is, is just a strange term, but it's the the, the uh, legal term for the area immediately surrounding and associated with the home. Um, so this this is this is uh, the immediately adjacent to the home, an area that is used kind of an, as an extension of the home itself. And this this area, the curtilage, receives the same protection essentially as the home itself. It's presumptively unreasonable to search the curtilage of a house. Um, without a warrant, just like it would be um, just like a, a police officer can't search inside someone's house without a warrant now this this decision in Collins v Virginia it was an eight to one decision so a very lopsided majority written by uh, majority written by justice sotomayor. there's a concurrence by justice Thomas which is an interesting concurrence which I'll, I'll talk about in a few minutes and also a dissent by justice Alito. So briefly, here, here are the facts of this case. Um, police in Virginia suspected a man named Ryan Collins of being the driver of a stolen motorcycle that was involved in several high speed, uh, chases, escapes from, from, from traffic enforcement officers. Um, using, uh, Facebook photos, the police located this, this motorcycle parked in the driveway of a home owned by Collins's girlfriend. Now, a police officer went to that address saw a motorcycle parked in the driveway uh, next to the house um, but that motorcycle was under a cover it was it was covered up so that the the actual the body of the motorcycle couldn't be um, couldn't be seen the officer who did not have a warrant went up the driveway to this motorcycle, lifted up the cover and was able to kind of visually identify the bike that it looked like the, the motorcycle they were looking for. And he also checked the VIN number and the plate, uh, the license plate on the motorcycle and confirmed that this was a stolen motorcycle. He subsequently arrested Collins and Collins was charged with receiving uh, stolen property. So the question here is was the the officer's warrantless entry into the driveway and the lifting of the motorcycle motorcycle's cover was that a violation of the 4th amendment So Justice Sotomayor's majority starts by by describing the area where this motorcycle was parked. It was the top of a driveway. It was only a few feet away from the side of the house. The area, this particular area of the driveway, was actually enclosed on three sides by the house and by two brick walls. It was a narrow area, just not much wider than than a car. And in that area, there was a direct side door access into the house, However, visitors to the house, uh, the, the front door of the house, visitors, uh, entering by the front door would not pass through this area. So it was not an area that, that just, uh, everyday people coming and going from the house would, would normally walk through. Um, and you can actually look online, there are photos available that show the motorcycle's location, and so you can, you can actually see, um, what the justices saw, uh, what this, this, uh, this driveway looked like. Now, the court found that this was, this was clearly part of the curtilage. Uh, this was, this is the area immediately adjacent to the outside of the house, which was kind of an extension of the house due to the door placement, and, and it was not an area that the public was normally walking through. And, so, th- because of that, this search implicated not only the Fourth Amendment interest in the search of the motorcycle, but also the Fourth Amendment interest in the search of the curtilage. Now, Justice Sotomayor holds that the automobile exception doesn't justify the invasion of the curtilage. She says the scope of this exception extends no farther than the automobile itself. The idea of the automobile exception was that police could search inside a an automobile, but but it's not it's not. Um, it doesn't go to a search of the place where the automobile happens to be located um and she presents a kind of gives a hypothetical she refers to what if instead of being in this driveway the motorcycle was actually parked inside the house parked in the living room of the house but visible through a window from the outside um and and she she says under settled case law there would be this would still be protected an officer could not enter the house to you know, look at that motorcycle without, without having a warrant to, uh, to enter the house. And, uh, Sotomayor also says that the rationales that the court has used to justify the automobile exception don't justify this, uh, intrusion into the separate interest in the home and the curtilage. The, the balancing of interests that's behind the automobile exception doesn't take into account these other privacy interests involved in, in, you know, the home and the curtilage. Um, in her majority opinion she also distinguishes two earlier cases that had been argued uh uh, uh to support the government's position one involved a the police who searched the trunk of a car that had uh, was had just pulled into an open garage she distinguishes that on the basis that, that probable cause already existed on the road and this is more similar to kind of a hot pursuit case and the second case involved the search of the the bed of a pickup truck um but she she said that that case never actually established that there was um, any Fourth Amendment interest in the particular home or the place where the, that truck was parked, that, that it was the curtilage or that there was a Fourth Amendment interest by the owner of the truck in that location. So she kind of distinguishes those cases says, says they don't really apply here. And she also goes on to reject a limitation that had been proposed by Virginia. They had, they had argued that, that, that there should, the court should limit um, the scope not to the, the curtilage as a whole, but to... Uh, They argued that the the threshold of fixed enclosed structures like a garage. So, you know, if this car was parked in the garage, inside a garage, even if the garage door was open, if this motorcycle was inside an open garage, that would be Beyond the limits of where police could go. But when it's out in the open, like in this driveway, then that shouldn't be covered. Uh, uh, Sotomayor rejects that distinction. She says that curtilage is, is a well-established concept. It's something officers already are supposed to be aware of when they're conducting searches. And she also says that visibility is, is not the legally relevant criteria. Um, it, it uh, the fact that the motorcycle was visible from the road doesn't justify um, entering the curtilage to see additional things that are not visible from the road, for example, underneath the cover on the motorcycle, um, and she says that this kind of a limitation to inside a closed, a fixed, enclosed structure would would arbitrarily limit these Fourth Amendment rights based on you know the someone's ability to afford an enclosed garage, and in other words, it would it would give uh, greater Fourth Amendment protections to people on the basis of being you know living in more affluent areas where uh, cars are more likely to be or stored in, inside side, um, but uh, uh, the opinion, the majority's opinion does leave open for lower courts to consider whether there may be some other justification for the search, a different exception, uh, f- for example, like exigent circumstances, that's, that's when there's some emergency that, that uh, justifies an immediate search, um, but, uh, but in general, the, the court uh, rejects extending the automobile exception uh, into the curtilage of a home and says that a warrant uh, would be required now justice alito dissented um and and he uh he frames this case uh, differently he here's here's uh, justice alito a line from early in his opinion he says the fourth amendment prohibits unreasonable searches what the police did in this case was entirely reasonable and he compares this same motorcycle that was parked in this driveway uh to uh, the, uh, the the if the a situation where that same exact motorcycle had been parked at the curb instead of in the driveway and there uh the automobile exception would have applied the the police could have you know could have inspected that motorcycle and he argues basically that that this uh, drawing this distinction based on it being uh, 30 feet away up the driveway is uh it, it's is not a rational distinction that the court should, should um uh should draw and, and says that uh, he points that the officer, quote, did not damage any property or observe anything along the way that he could not have seen from the street. So he's saying basically that there's just there really is no strong um, privacy interest that was invaded by walking up the driveway. Um, and he also the interesting part of his opinion is he disputes the majority's description of the significance of the curtilage in the court's Fourth Amendment case law. Um, he, he he argues that uh, the only reason the curtilage is important is it distinguishes whether the Fourth Amendment applies at all. Um, the area outside of the curtilage, so area on someone's property but not within the curtilage, not within the, the immediate surrounding area around the house, that's referred to as, as an open field. That's just the term that's used to it, the open fields doctrine. And and uh, under the court's precedence, the open fields are not subject to the Fourth Amendment at all. There's no Fourth Amendment protection in those. So he says the whole purpose of the court's um, curtilage uh precedence is just to establish that the curtilage gets some protection but he um and he says here there's no dispute that the fourth amendment applies in some way the question is whether the warrant requirement applies and he says there's really no reason that the house and the curtilage need to be treated identically for purposes of the warrant requirement um uh, interestingly though this portion of his opinion does not cite any cases uh that 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 uh that Support uh, a different treatment of the cartilage from the home itself. So it's it's kind of a uh, he 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 argues that there's no reason to treat these the same, but doesn't seem to have any support from case law that the court has treated these differently in the past. Um, he he argues that the uh, the rationale for the automobile exception applies equally in the curtilage uh, as it would if the, the if the automobile was stopped on the street, and distinguishes Justice Sotomayor's. Uh, hypothetical situation where the motorcycle was parked inside the house distinguishes that based on the degree of intrusion involved and saying that that, that's a different situation where a warrant would still be required because there's clearly this greater uh, intrusion if if an officer was actually entering someone's uh, home. Justice Sotomayor did respond uh, in a lengthy footnote uh, to um, some of Justice Alito's um, reasoning and, and among other things Accused Justice Alito of basically ignoring the significance of of private property in in arguing that there's no distinction between a motorcycle parked at the curb and one that's uh, up uh, near the house uh, uh, at the end of a driveway. Um, uh, but moving on, the third opinion in in this uh, this case uh, is, is Justice Thomas's concurrence. Now, Justice Thomas joined the majority in full, said it was a correct uh, application of the court's Fourth Amendment law, but he um. He he basically said that that um, he disputes the 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 remedy in this case. Now now the whole reason, as Justice Thomas points out, the whole reason that this case is in here is in federal court is because of the exclusionary rule. Now the exclusionary rule is the idea that um, when the government violates uh, Fourth Amendment rights in conducting a search or seizure, um, that the evidence that's obtained. From that violation can be excluded; it can be, it can be prevented from being introduced in court. So, the, the, the whole reason that Collins is uh, is litigating this is because he wants a finding that it, that if his Fourth Amendment rights were violated, that the uh, the government can't introduce the fact that he had he had this stolen motorcycle can't be introduced against him in court because it was an illegal search. And uh, Justice Thomas says here's a quote he says the assumption that state courts must apply the federal exclusionary rule is legally dubious. And he goes through uh his his uh, his reasoning for that. He says that this exclusionary rule it just basically it did not exist. Um, early in the in the country's history, it didn't exist at the time of the Fourth Amendment or at the time of the Fourteenth Amendment. That's relevant because it was the Fourteenth Amendment that made the the Fourth Amendment rights apply against state governments, not just the federal governments. But he says at either time, the Fourth or the Fourteenth Amendment, the exclusionary rule just did not exist. Traditionally, the remedy in American law for an unlawful search was a tort suit against the the uh, the person violating the rights, the police officer who conducted that unlawful search. Um, and he says that the exclusionary rule is just a a 20th century development. Uh, Most states didn't apply the exclusionary rule until the Supreme Court required it in a 1961 case called MAP v. Ohio, and he says that historically the legality of the acquisition of evidence was irrelevant to whether it was admissible in court. Now, he also says that that, that later Supreme Court cases have recognized that this uh, exclusionary rule wasn't a constitutionally mandated rule. Instead it's, it's a court crafted prudential rule. He says that the court's opinions have described this as, as just a a court crafted rule um, that isn't actually required by the constitution. And justice Thomas says, if that's the case, then there's really no justification for requiring the States to follow it. States, according to justice Thomas should be free to craft their own remedies to fourth amendment violations. That may be different from the remedies that the federal courts think are appropriate. Now, this is interesting because this is just an example, and there's been many of these over the years. But it's an example of Justice Thomas's willingness to really strike off on his own and and argue that whole areas of the law that have long been considered settled should just be reconsidered from first principles. Um, and this is this is a repeating theme with Justice Thomas, and he's really he's he's one of the only justices that really does this on a on a, on a any kind of regular basis. The interesting thing here though is uh, and this is not unusual, no one else is with him here. He's he's as he often is uh, all by himself in this opinion. Now, Justice Gorsuch uh, has shown interest in a few cases. He's suggested that he's open to reconsidering certain major areas of law and and he and he's also shown an interest into really delving into the historical basis for some current practices. But he's nowhere to be seen here. There's no indication that he agrees with Justice Thomas's take, and the majority doesn't really even respond to Justice Thomas at all, which is not unusual for these separate opinions where where Thomas is really standing alone. The court, uh, it's it, it's not a uh, change in law that appears to have any any likelihood of going anywhere anytime soon, so the court doesn't really spend any time addressing it. Um, So that's it for that case, and that moves us on to the second opinion this week, which is called Lagos v. United States, and this was a a unanimous opinion, a short unanimous opinion by Justice Breyer, and this is a case about the interpretation of the Mandatory Victims Restitution Act, it's called the MVRA, and this act, it requires criminal defendants convicted of certain crimes to pay restitution to the victims for certain categories of injuries, and here's the briefly. Here are the facts in this case. The, the the criminal defendant here was a man named Sergio Lagos, and he controlled a company called Drive and Logistics. Now, Lagos fraudulently fraudulently obtained tens of millions of dollars in loans from the General Electric Capital Corporation using forged paperwork. Uh, it was forged uh, invoices for for uh, services that his company had uh, supposedly provided. Now. As a result of the 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 uh, uh, this fraud being uncovered, his company, this Drive In Logistics, uh, went bankrupt, and Lagos was indicted and ended up pleading guilty to wire fraud. Now, where wh- where this case comes down is is that under the MVRA, the Mandatory Victims Restitution Act, um, when someone is uh, is is uh, sentenced for um for certain crimes, the judge is required to award restitution for certain categories of, of harms. So the judge awarded restitution to GE Capital, and one of the things that was included in this award was was uh was an award for the expenses incurred in GE Capital's internal investigations of this of this fraud and also for GE Capital's participation in the bankruptcy proceedings of dry van logistics. And this 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 uh, this amount, the amount at issue uh, in this particular case is in the ballpark of five million dollars in restitution, mostly for professional fees for attorneys, accountants, and consultants. Now, the specific <laughs> statutory language at issue that's being argued over says that the, the, the defendant is, needs to, and this is a quote, reimburse the victim for lost income and, nece- and, and necessary childcare, transportation, and other expenses incurred during participation in the investigation or prosecution of the offense or attendance at proceedings related to the offense. Now, the dispute is over that last part, the expenses incurred during participation in the investigation or prosecution of the offense or attendance at proceedings related to the offense. So the defendant, Lagos, he argues that the the word investigation and the word proceedings, those words refer only to the government's investigations and the criminal prosecutions. So the proceedings would be would be attending the criminal prosecution and participating in the investigation means participating in the government's investigation. Now, the United States and and GE Capital, the victim here, they argued that that these words are much broader and and should cover the expenses that that, uh, that restitution was awarded for here, uh, including GE Capital's internal investigations, which that which was very costly and they spent a lot of money on. Now, Justice Breyer's majority opinion, again, this is unanimous opinion. it focuses uh very closely on the text of this uh, particular provision. It notes that investigation is directly connected with prosecution. It says the investigation or prosecution, which suggests that they're talking about a government criminal investigation the way it's tied to the criminal prosecution. Similarly, proceedings, which you know come in the same sentence here, proceedings related to the offense it suggests that we're talking about the criminal prosecution because that's what we, sh- we were just talking about the criminal prosecution and investigation and proceedings related to the offense meaning the criminal the criminal um, proceedings and the court notes that, that some of the other words used the word participation uh, it says participation isn't a good fit for one's own investigation it's more natural to say that GE capital conducted its own investigation not that it participated in its own investigation and also attendance doesn't seem like a good fit for participating in civil proceedings. Uh, GE Capital didn't just attend the civil proceedings. They want compensation for all of the, the legal work they did, uh, in participating in those proceedings. So, so they say that the, the, the Justice Spriar says basically that, uh, these words suggest a much narrower scope for this restitution provision. Um, the court also points to the, the other, um, things that are covered other than these other expenses, um, the statute refers to lost income, child care, and transportation. And it's more natural to read these other expenses as the same type of thing. These are expenses someone would occur in being interviewed by government investigators or testifying at trial. Um, and there's no terms, no, no other kind of specific terms in these list of, of, uh, types of, uh, types of injuries that are similar to expenses like Hiring private investigators or consultants. Um, so the argument is that other expenses should be read to be of the same uh, type. And, and Justice Breyer specifically refers to a canon of interpretation. That's that's a kind of a, a legal a rule of thumb that's used to interpret uh, uh, legal text. And it's one that goes by a Latin name called Nosquitero Sokies it's which is just a fancy way of saying it's the idea that a word is known by the company it keeps so so when when he they're talking here about proceedings and investigation um, uh, reading this this entire sentence as as a whole uh this entire provision as a whole kind of gives uh, gives the context to it and 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 uh, uh shows the type of expense that they're really talking about um, Justice Breyer also talks a little about practical considerations. Um, one thing is that, that that these expenses, the statute only covers quote necessary expenses, and it says basically if this is limited limited to participation and attendance that's been requested or required by the government, then the scope of what was necessary um, participation is is pretty clear. But if we extend this to private investigations and legal proceedings, um, then you might have to have all kinds of collateral litigation over what was really necessary. Was it, were these really necessary expenses? Um, and similarly, similarly, uh, it may be difficult in some cases to determine when a particular proceeding is related to the offense. If it's not limited to just the criminal prosecution, how far does this extend? So prior just presents that as another, um, uh, consideration that, that makes, makes the, uh, the the narrower interpretation much cleaner and much easier to apply. Um, He addresses a a counter-argument made by the other side, arguing that, that this narrow reading leaves some expenses uncompensated, so some harms suffered by the victim don't get uh, fully compensated. But Breyer notes that Congress has passed a number of different restitution statutes, and these different statutes have differing coverage. Some cover more, some cover less than others. Unlike some of these restitution statutes, statutes the MVRA doesn't um, say that it covers the victim's losses in full. Um, it only covers specifically identified losses and expenses um, that are spelled out in these particular provisions. And Breyer also notes that there's one other restitution statute that explicitly covers, quote, the value of the time reasonably spent by the victim in an attempt to remediate the intended or actual harm incurred by the victim from the offense. And that would seem to cover this kind of expenses related to internal investigations, but there's nothing like that in this particular restitution statute. And Breyer also notes that that there are other remedies available. And in this case, GE Capital actually did bring a civil suit and was awarded more than $30 million in damages. Um, just, Breyer notes that apparently GE Capital has been largely unable to collect this money, but he says there's no reason to think that a restitution award would, would be any better in that respect. Um, he, one final uh, argument he addresses is, is GE Capital's argument that, uh, that they shared the results of this investigation with the government and therefore, uh, this should bring it within Uh, the scope of the government's investigation. But Breyer responds to that, that actually the statute says expenses incurred during participation in the investigation, and GE's own investigation was before the government's investigation, which just isn't within the the language of the statute. Now, the court leaves open whether similar types of investigative expenses might be covered if they were incurred at the government's request, if the government had asked GE Capital to, to conduct its own investigation into this Um, Maybe, you know, would that would that be covered? Uh, The court leaves that as an open question. So, an interesting thing about this opinion is a short opinion, but it's it's a thoroughly textualist opinion, and textualism refers to an approach to interpreting legal text where where there's a, a heavy focus on the specific words of the statute, the actual language that's used, the context of that language, how different words and phrases and sections interrelate with each other, um, and looking at the just focusing on that specific text in order to determine meaning, and under a textualist approach. Um, judges don't resort to things like the broad purposes that were uh, motivating a statute, uh, the, the broad things that a statute was was aimed to achieve, and doesn't doesn't ask whether members of Congress would have wanted these particular expenses to be covered. They just look at the whether the actual language uh, should be best read uh, to cover, you know, just by by the uh, um, a fair reading of that language. And this is this is a very common approach for this court. Um, Justice Breyer is often described as the the least textualist of the current justices, the most likely to to want to look to these broader purposes or congressional intent. intent. But as this opinion shows, even he is willing to write a, a thoroughly textualist opinion that seems to be driven almost exclusively by the language of the statute itself. And it's just an interesting illustration of how textualism has really become the dominant approach to statutory interpretation at the Supreme Court. Um, live stream time Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can always check the Counting to Five YouTube channel to find the next scheduled live stream. Now, next week's live stream: the court held its private conference for this week earlier today, and an orders list will be issued Monday morning at 9:30, uh, coming out of that conference. And so, we may see some more um, cases granted for next term out of in that orders list. And according to the court's public information office, opinions are also expected Monday morning. That would be issued at 10 a.m. Um The court has not announced any additional opinion so far, no additional opinion days uh, for next week. So it'll just be Monday that we're expecting um some more opinions from the court. And just as a reminder, there's only four weeks left of the term and 29 cases still outstanding. Um That means the court's got to get through, on average, seven to eight cases a week. Um, it's almost certain that the court will add additional decision days later um, in June. Uh, it won't It won't issue opinions only on Mondays, but will add an additional day or two to get some additional other opinions out. Just based on past practice, the court um, rarely, if ever issues more than say five or six opinions in a in in a single day. Um, and so if they stick with that practice, uh, they'll need to add additional days to get all of these, uh, these opinions out. And as I mentioned before, this case has an unusual number of, of kind of really high profile major cases. And of those major cases, really only, only two of the highly anticipated cases have been decided so far. That's the, uh, Murphy v. NCAA, uh, sports betting case and the Epic Systems. That's the case about, uh, the enforceability of employment, uh, arbitration class waiver provisions. Uh, and th- those cases have been decided, but but the rest of the major cases, and again, uh, depending on how you count, eight to ten of them, they're all still pending. Um, so, so we're going to have a lot of big cases coming down in, in a very short period of time. Um, so uh, we're gonna we're gonna have some some busy weeks uh, going forward. I, I actually I don't know whether whether I'll be able to um, to cover everything, uh, in, 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 uh, in, in these, uh, weekly live streams, I may either have to give very abbreviated descriptions of the cases or, or potentially I'll, I'll, uh, uh split things up and add, uh, additional, um, additional, uh, live stream days where I cover some of these opinions. I'm not really sure how I'll approach that going forward, but, but we'll see. Um, but in any case, uh, next week, it looks like we'll just have opinions coming down Monday. So, so planning the live stream as usual next Thursday. Whether you're watching on YouTube or listening to the audio podcast, I would love your feedback. You can leave comments on the show notes at Countingtofive.com, on the CountingToFive to five YouTube channel or Facebook page. You can tweet at Counting to five or send an email to Mike at CountingToFive.com. Please subscribe to the Counting to Five YouTube channel or audio podcast to make sure you don't miss future episodes. Thank you for listening. This has been Counting to Five.